This is a side episode of the Oldest Stories podcast. There's another episode releasing at the same time, Israel's United Monarchy, which continues the story of Israel and looks at the historical value of the books of Samuel. But this one is about my opinion of things, and so it may not be actually relevant or valuable or interesting or, let's be honest, correct. But this is a good time in the general narrative to pause and consider some things. Now, just to give an overview of this episode to see if you actually want to listen all the way through, the topics I'm going to discuss today are why do I believe that Israel entered Canaan as outsiders violently invading, when so much of academia believes that these invasions never happened and that the Israelite emergence was largely peaceful? Why do I believe that the Bible as we have it today is a worthwhile historical record, at least worthwhile enough to go over so extensively on a history podcast? Why has my perspective on the historical tale of the Bible not changed, even though I began studying it as an atheist and am now studying it as a fairly conservative Christian? How can I, personally, continue to have faith in the religion revealed in the Bible when I have, in previous episodes, vehemently argued that certain fairly important parts of the Old Testament are meant as history and are yet false? Why does God's story so often occur inside gaps of our knowledge? And why does the revealing light of science never reveal God's hand? What's the meaning of analyzing the various books of the Bible through the lens of genre? Why does that matter for understanding some biblical problems? And why does that make other problems even worse? And finally, why does history matter at all? particularly Israelite or biblical history. And just looking at that list of questions that I've typed out here, I'm kind of grimacing. This might be a long episode. It might be a bit of a rant. But let's start with the easiest, the issue of the military history of Israel. You see, military history is sort of an odd duck, generally speaking. Among proper academics, it has a bit of a reputation as being a bit sordid, the sort of thing that one does to appeal to the masses, but with little real value and often no great rigor. Some will even go so far as to say things like the outcomes of particular battles, the tactics and technology are nearly irrelevant to the wider sweep of history and that only the outcomes of the wars are relevant, though this is probably a minority position. On the other hand, there are many people for whom military history is pretty much the start and end of history. Hollywood battles, war games, both tabletop and computer, war news, war novels, hardware geeks. For a certain kind of person, it's easy to get sucked into one or more facets of war-focused entertainment and build a whole hobby around it. I'm, I myself, I'm not immune to this. In my increasingly limited free time, I do Warhammer 40,000, where I build and paint futuristic armies of blue space aliens to fight against the Imperium of Mankind. I read the books as well, and so I can certainly emphasize with the people whose focus is on historical warfighting of one sort or another to the exclusion of all else. 
And yet, like all things in life, the best path for a proper historical study lies somewhere in the middle. The dryness of the pure archaeologists and academic tracts can sometimes turn off the general consumer, who will naturally drift to the more exciting war stories. And those very unwashed masses, hungry for stories of the past, can attract pop science hustlers and the sort of people who give those very fields a bad reputation. The History Channel on cable TV has somehow become reality TV trash, but I remember a time before that when it was all about real history. But then it turned out that the real history that got the most ratings was war, and most of all World War II, and then there was a period when the History Channel had a reputation for being all Hitler all the time. While normal people kind of liked that stuff, I think this made it harder to get the real historians involved in the kind of quality stuff that you see all over YouTube nowadays because no one wanted to be associated with that, until finally it was no one but the ancient aliens people left. Of course, I think most academic historians, if they think about it for a moment, would be happy to tell you that a society's military activities are one of many important parts of their history and development. Then they would tell you that, oh, I happen to specialize in something else, and then they'd go on to mostly ignore the military details. Meanwhile, most war nerds certainly recognize that all the other parts of society are historically important and comprise 99% of what even the most violent societies spend their time on, but then they would say, ah, that stuff is boring! Bang! Bang! Pew! Pew! Boom! That's what we want! Well, today we're not going to get into the pew, pew, boom, or even just stabbing people, because we're going to look at the military organization and equipment and tactics of ancient Israel in a future episode right now that's going to be in the future somewhere. But for today, this is all kind of a prelude for an historiographical note. I've sort of touched on it in previous episodes, but never found a place to focus in on it. But there is an idea that the emergence of Israel was an extremely peaceful affair. These people who later became the kingdoms of Israel are believed in this view to have found some basically uninhabited land or moved in peacefully next to the people who were already there or spent their pre-monarchy time quietly farming without really engaging in much violence at all. This is not a biblical perspective, and indeed I half imagine that it was formed as a rejection of the biblical perspective, though really it's part of a much broader academic trend to reimagine nearly all mass population movements, from the Aryan entry into Europe and India, to the Sea Peoples, to the barbarian invasions of Rome, but most definitely not the European colonization of the Americas, away from the old invasion model and more into a peaceful migration model, where these population movements are matters of general peaceful coexistence, not of structured invasions. 
Now, as we mentioned in the Sea Peoples episode, and at various points in previous episodes, it's not a bad thing to move away from the idea of structured invasions when discussing loosely organized groups or completely disorganized groups like those who usually get called barbarians. But I do think that, in general, the idea that large population migrations are usually non-violent in a whole is one of those comical overreactions that history will, in a few generations, look back on itself and laugh about. In the case of tribal Israel in particular, and many of these population movements in general, the issue is fundamentally archaeological that when excavating the time periods of these migrations, we don't see nearly as many destruction layers as we might expect from large-scale invasions. Oftentimes, we don't even see a sudden replacement of material culture, suggesting that the former people was not wholly wiped out and replaced wholesale by the invaders. But if we only see violence in places where we see destruction layers, then we are simply going to radically underestimate the violence that we see in the ancient world compared to pretty much any other metric. The ancient world was shockingly, persistently violent compared to nowadays. Look at how shocked the world is over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, leaving aside the moral component, this sort of thing is now extremely rare, when in the ancient world, these sorts of invasions were expected of most kings on a somewhat regular basis. Not everyone invaded everyone all the time, but there was a much higher level of both state-on-state -state violence, or at least ruler-on-ruler -ruler violence, as well as sometimes a ceaseless cycle of raiding and counter-raiding for really petty gains alongside borders and in the poorly controlled regions. And the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse, with so many new entrants into the region and so many groups vying for control, the idea that anyone would have lived peacefully here is simply a disconnect between academic ideas and reality. Whether Joshua entered Israel at the head of a mighty army, or some group of Canaanites developed a new religious idea, the people who emerged on the banks of the Jordan River around 1200 BCE fought their neighbors. Even if archaeology doesn't reveal battle sites or cities burning down, we know that these people must have been raided and they must have attacked because we know that their neighbors were going around raiding and attacking people to gain loot and territory. And while we don't strictly know in a historical, archaeological, purely settled sense that these people in turn attacked anyone, it would be extremely unusual for a society to survive in such an unsettled era without violence, both as a practical matter and as an ideological one. Anyway, I assume that the people of Israel were as violent as anyone else in their age, which is what's borne out in the biblical record, a pretty standard level of violence for a successful conquering group. But of course, I'm assuming that here on this ostensibly history podcast, knowing full well that I'm going against at least some part of the grain of mainstream historical analysis here, 
since I read so much from ancient texts, let's read some scattering sentences from Wikipedia. The consensus of modern scholars is that the Bible does not give an accurate account of the origins of the Israelites. The prevailing scholarly view is that Joshua is not a factual account of historical events. The book of Joshua holds little historical value. Israel Finkelstein argues that Jerusalem was then a small country village in the Judean hills, not a national capital, and Usishkin argues that the city was entirely uninhabited. Ideas of a united monarchy are not accurate history, but creative expressions of a powerful religious reform movement. Now, those are more firm stances than you would find in more academic publications, but they unquestionably represent a body of very intelligent people looking at the data and making their best conclusions. They begin by looking at the Bible and seeing, as we have so far in our investigation, that much of it is resistant to historical analysis because it takes place in a gap in our knowledge. They then look at the places we definitely can make historical judgments, picking, for instance, Genesis 14 and Numbers 1, or more often just the creation and flood accounts, and they decided that these things are definitely wrong in some or all aspects. And from this, they then calmly weigh the evidence. Some false stories on one side, some stuff that's hard to verify on the other side, and sometimes throw in a general criticism of miracles and the divine in general, and it makes total sense that they've now completely rejected the entire Old Testament, barring some minor segments, as totally false. Now, my issue with this approach is that we would then go over to the Greek historical tradition, just to take one famous example, and we start treating it differently. We would never lump Herodotus, Hesiod, Thucydides, Xenophon, and the rest into one unit. We start off by seeing them as different authors, writing often in different genres, a courtesy not often extended to the Bible, which gets treated as one great unit. But also, with the Greek authors, we know that they were often wrong about things as well, particularly things distant from their own personal experience. Herodotus, in fact, is called the father of lies about as often as he's called the father of history. And while plenty of people are cautious about using his work to demonstrate things, his version so often remains the definitive version because it's so often the only one we have to work with. And we operate with an assumption that he was at least trying to tell what actually happened, while also trying to tell a good story at the same time. You see, with one source we say it was written a few centuries after the fact, based on nothing but hearsay and fantasy, while with the other source we say, oh, it was written after the events themselves, based on evidence and testimony available at the time. And those are, of course, two ways of saying the exact same thing in different shades. Yet there isn't so much ideological pressure to consider one false because it mentions a god that the scholars don't believe in, and very little ideological pressure weighing in on the other, even though it mentions a set of gods that the scholars don't believe in. I could go on a lot longer and 
I definitely have in a much less articulate way in real life, but it is the inconsistent standards applied to biblical topics that really irritates me here. But I shouldn't just leave it at that. If we approach all of history with a consistent view, we still have to choose if we're going to be generally skeptical of the written sources or generally trusting of them. And there is definitely value in having people with a range of views on sources, skeptics and non-skeptics, doing history in a peaceful academic setting. I make no secret of the fact that I generally trust written sources, whether it be the Chronicle of a Warring King or the Book of Chronicles filled with warring kings. Not completely, they're all written by fallible humans, but I generally believe that the authors of these ancient texts are doing their best to write what happened, and where there is ideological motivation to make a king or god look better, I generally believe the writers are going to flavor existing events, not make things up whole cloth. If we apply a greater skepticism to historical documents, by which I mean going radically in the other direction, not merely considering skeptical claims and reducing our certainty appropriately, then for ancient history, we end up with historical nihilism. Fundamentally, there are no history textbooks for China. Before about 1200 BCE, only archaeological descriptions of what we find there. And that at least is appropriate, since they had no written record before that time. And indeed, just as in Sumer, it took a few centuries for writing to really get established there as well. And yet, from the few clues that we do have, we know that there were pre-literate Chinese civilizations who almost certainly had fascinating stories for us, stories mostly lost to the mists of time. In the ancient Near East, we have over a thousand extra years of significant written record, a millennium of stories and culture that took me 120 episodes to work through, and I still skipped a lot. While a lot of this was supported by archaeology, none of it would have been possible without the written record, on which I primarily rely in this show. I've actually gotten pretty attached to these stories, to the people of the ancient Near East, to their culture and ideas through the course of this show, just on an emotional level from the process of researching them so much. And what if we applied the same hyper-skepticism to the Mesopotamian written record that we apply to the Bible? Suddenly, every story that was composed after the fact is suspect. Nothing was written when it says it was written. Nearly all of the Sumerian period becomes a blank just because of the lack of sure, firm authorship. Many of the most fascinating letters are now forgeries and fictions because we have them as later copies, and anything written letter later is unreliable. The records of kings written during the king's lifetime, often only months after the events that they're describing, well, we can't trust them either because they're all propaganda. And as soon as we declare a thing propaganda or ideologically driven, it means it can no longer be connected to any historical reality at all. 
And of course, there's almost nothing written that doesn't invoke the Mesopotamian gods, gods which the modern academy pretty universally considers to be fictions. We toss out the gods, and suddenly even the economic receipts, which often say things like, witnessed by Nisaba or whoever, well, they're no longer valid since we all know that Nisaba, being a fiction invented by inferior minds polluted by religion and hobbled by ancientness, wasn't actually present at the time. What we get is historical nihilism. Suddenly nothing is left but a handful of economic receipts and lexical lists upon which to hang a good bit of archaeology. No actual stories. A unique treasure in human history. A thousand years of accomplishment. The literal oldest stories, and they vanish into the irrelevant myths and lies of people who weren't clever enough to see through their own propaganda. Oh, not like the great minds of the modern academy. This isn't the Bible I'm worried about here. I actually think it's something bigger, even if this is perhaps less relevant to modern history. Look, I, for example, I considered for a time branching the show out to Mesoamerica, a part of a series that would look at all the major cradles of civilization. There, too, among the Olmecs, Mayas, Aztecs, and apparently dozens of unique, if less well-known people, there was a flourishing, literate civilization. But then there came a group into the re region who was so certain that all the written records of those people were irrelevant myth, as opposed to their present ideologies, that nearly every written document was destroyed. There, too, maybe at least a thousand years of history and culture were put on literal fires. And it's simply impossible to do the kind of story I do here about the ancient Maya. Now, there's a really good Mesoamerican history production over on Great Courses, which you can also get on Audible, neither of which sponsor me. If you listen to a bunch of podcasts, I'm sure you know what those are already. But this guy is a University of Texas guy. He's based right here in Austin, and his show is fantastic. He's a great storyteller, but ultimately, it's almost all archaeology, which is fundamentally different from history, fundamentally less in, it's less in certain real ways. Similarly, my wife is Filipina, and she can tell me almost nothing about Philippine history before the Spanish. The Tagalog people of Luzon had a written language. They had cities. They had a trade empire running from Oman to Japan. They had a complex social system, and now all they have left from before the Spanish is one written document written on a copper plate in about like the 900s about a lady being cleared of her debt that was found on some, in some other country that the Spanish hadn't gotten to. The application of skepticism to ancient documents is not the same as throwing indigenous documents and often scholars into a fire, but it comes from a similar hubris, from an idea that I can look over an incomplete fraction of a culture and judge what is and is not true, or from a belief that ancient peoples were being tricked by propaganda in a way that I nowadays would not fall victim to. And when the end result 
sees us taking documents that once shed light, even if imperfect light, on a people and trading that out for darkness, then the radical skeptic and the conquistador are accomplishing the same task of erasing a whole people from history. Now, it's not that skepticism and questioning have no place in the process. They're both useful tools when looking at documents. But it belongs only inside the process of analyzing a document. Skepticism should never be the end result. Either you have a document and you have external evidence confirming or denying it, in which case you don't have skepticism, you have a balance of evidence to weigh, or you have the document alone. Now, when you only have the document, then you, but then you stick on other sides of the scale, things like, oh, this is propaganda, or this is just a copy. How do they really know? What you're doing is you're putting your fingers on the scales with, you're weighing an evidence with a value judgment, often in a way that you wouldn't do from modern newspapers, modern government data, or even more recent European history. That finger is the finger of hubris. A document plus skepticism, that's nothing but a document. In the same way that $5 plus skepticism will buy the same amount of coffee as $5. In Mesopotamian history, thankfully, this sort of hard skepticism is not the mainstream. It does exist, and I find it extremely frustrating, but the vast majority, especially among reputable scholars, are quite happy to let the ancient world speak for itself and be epistemically humble about what the total, what the, what the end result is going to be here. After all, most of them wouldn't be devoting their lives to this study if they didn't love the culture that they were uncovering and sharing with the world, much as I do in my own much less significant way. But when it comes to the Bible, this no longer holds. A good number of people who spend a great deal of time researching the Bible appear to really hate it and go to great lengths to erase the people of Israel in a way that would rightly be called out if it was applied to an indigenous culture. Now, I don't want to malign the motives of anyone in scholarship, but as much as I can attribute a lot of this to hubris and methodological confusion, some of it really does get mean-spirited. Take the story of Saul. Now, you don't need to believe the whole story of good old King Saul, you don't need to hold on to the details firmly. You can and should be open to the appearance of evidence confirming or denying aspects of his story. I don't know if you've listened to episode 116 left yet, but there is no particular reason that we should not believe that there was a political leader named Saul who fought against his enemies and brought some of the tribes and territory of Israel together. Back in episode 77, we had no particular reason to believe the adventures of Idrimi of Alalach, and yet I read through his story pretty credulously overall. Why do I believe that the Bible is generally reliable? Because I believe that the story of Idrimi was basically reliable. I believe that most historical documents present people's best efforts to present at least a version of what actually happened as best they know. 
embellishment, ideology, and poetic editing can distort things pretty badly. But so can the belief that we nowadays are smart enough to ignore what the people of the ancient world were saying. Anyway, I have gotten a number of emails from listeners, as well as people in my real life, because, as I've mentioned on this show, I'm a convert to Christianity. I grew up in a very liberal Jewish household, so liberal that we stopped going to temple before I was of an age to bar mitzvah, and I fell away from God completely, feeling no particular compulsion to need a God in my life and quite content with the answers to the universe I could find through science and the answers to life I could find through philosophy. And where I didn't have a good enough answer, I was pretty certain that the forward march of purely human knowledge would one day fill in that gap. My conversion has nothing to do with anything I studied in ancient texts. Nothing to do with apologetics ministries or clever YouTubers. Indeed, I think about it often, how I could, from my current perspective, persuade my former self of my current faith. I'm not sure that I could. I was converted primarily by my wife and secondarily by a Bible study in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, the details would be a very long and not terribly interesting story, but the short version is that she bore a powerful testimony to me of her own relationship with God. And as she did, we both felt the powerful manifestation of the Holy Spirit with us. Now, I know all about confirmation bias and seeing what you want to see, and the thousands of reasons that rationalists have to discount personal miraculous experiences, and yet, having personally experienced it, my former certainty was replaced by a bit of shock, and then a new certainty that, in fact, there is a creator of this world, and his love is active in this world, and after that, a Bible study group happened to form at work just by coincidence, and we were read through Philippians, and reading deeply through that really converted me, really took that seed and made it into a full flower, though I wasn't baptized until a while later. Anyway, I say all of that because when I started this podcast, I was a committed atheist. And as some of my early show notes Back before I knew I was going to cover everything in chronological order, I looked through the Old Testament to see what would be appropriate to include in the show, maybe after the myths of Mesopotamia and Egypt had been covered. And I came to the general conclusion that the actual history in the Bible began in the wilderness wandering period. It seemed likely to me that there was some Egyptian connection, though what form that took I wasn't sure, and it probably had little to do with the Charlton Heston version. Through Joshua, Judges, and the other histories, I figured there were embellishments, but that the general track of history seemed valid. Genesis and Exodus, I figured, were mythological more or less. Now, as you may have noticed, my thinking on this topic's hasn't really shifted much at all. I'm more open to the idea that there may have been an historical Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that their stories as given have unquestionably shifted over time. And I see a different value in the text as a whole, because, of course, I go to church every week. But the point I'm getting at is that while I certainly hold a perspective on biblical history, 
I believe that it's overall a faith-neutral one. I don't believe an atheist or a polytheist or anyone should feel that the fact of historical Israel will require that they convert or require that God be true. Similarly, I've encountered a number of discussions among the faithful that all these books do not need to be history to be true in some ultimate sense, that they could principally be metaphors pointing to God, allowing some to disbelieve in much of Israel's historical experience, yet still hold fast to the word of God. But now, that last is not actually the position I hold. It's one that I've seen put forward by very intelligent, faithful people, and so I don't want to discount it wholly. I've been wrong about some things in the past. I'll be wrong about things in the future, and hardest to admit, I'm certainly wrong about some set of ideas right this very moment. But putting that aside, there are parts of the Bible which some people have taken to be history, like Job or the first to laugh in chapters of Genesis, which others have argued were not ever actually meant as history. However, leading aside the discussion of genre for later, there are parts which were unquestionably meant as history, which history can tell you are false. Now, there are little parts like Abraham's camels, which are anachronistic, but really pretty irrelevant, which we can write off as just later insertions. Then there are the numerical transcription errors that take a bit more explaining, but aren't actually a problem when handled wisely. You see, some numbers had numerological significance, like 40 and 7, though there were probably others, and weren't meant to be taken literally, but as symbols for a long time or for completeness, respectively. The way I might say that I've written a million episodes on Israel and haven't even gotten a King David yet, and you would know what I mean without actually having to count them. In other numerical issues, the numerical system in ancient Hebrew sounds like, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but it sounds like it was actually pretty bad, in that many different numbers, and often what we would now consider as place values, are hard to tell apart from each other without absolutely perfect handwriting. And over thousands of years of manual transcription, these particular characters got corrupted far more than the letters did. Also because letters usually have a self-correcting context around them, where if the word is misspelled in a copy, it's much easier to tell right away that that's incorrect, whereas a number is often contextless. For instance, I just edited that last sentence. I said, if the world is misspelled in a copy because I'd written it down wrong, but I was able to go back and fix it. I could e immediately tell I'd written the wrong word in my notes, but if I'd put a number down there, I might not have any idea if that's the right number or not when I come back through to correct anything. But those sorts of errors should not rightly shake the faith of anyone who understands these things, and they don't really have a powerful place in anti-Christian or anti-biblical argumentation. But then there's another class of errors. The places where the Bible seems to really be false. For me personally, the biggest one is Genesis 14, where the kingdoms of Mesopotamia and Elam joined forces during the time of Abraham to subjugate the Levant. Now, I've discussed it before, and it was one of the most shocking 
things for me to realize in terms of gross errors, because I'd, I'd never seen anybody mention it before, but this situation is geopolitically impossible in the Age of Abraham. That being pretty much any point in the Middle or Early Bronze Age. There was just no time when these kingdoms joined up to subjugate the Levant for an extended period of time, or any period of time as an alliance. Also, what I haven't discussed yet is the Book of Esther, which has no apparently no plausible context at all in the Persian Empire. I'm not a Persian specialist, but that's what the spe specialists tell me. And just a small amount of uncertainty because of the lack of records. And as we go forward, there's more and more lack of records that can be claimed in defense of any of these. But the Exodus, as portrayed in the biblical narrative, really does have some issues when examined critically. And while I personally think that the general thrust of the Joshua narrative is plausible, I'm open to those who disagree, which would punch another pretty important hole in the historical narratives of the Bible. Now, the natural first reaction of many people when confronted with these sorts of genuine, substantive criticisms of the Bible's historical accuracy is to hold even harder to the literal word of God. Now, some will dig deep into fringe histories that support the Bible, that are themselves based on fraud and wishful thinking. Others will simply deny history. If one book has to be wrong, either the history book or God's book, well, it certainly can't be God's book. But for me, this misunderstands inspiration and God's word. For we know that the world he created is true. Some even talking about him writing two parallel books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Our understanding of the world can and often does change. But if you look at it, so too does our understanding of scripture over time. The original authors of the text, which became our modern scripture, were inspired by God. There is, I think, no Christian denomination that would disagree with that. Now, what exactly that inspiration means varies across different perspectives, from them being men who witnessed holy things, doing their mortal best to record it, all the way from having God himself aiming their pens. Now, that part is fine, except it doesn't get us as far as people would like it to. You see, Muslims believe that every last word of their Quran is preserved and guaranteed by God, a theological concept that I'm not touching with a 40-foot pole, but Christians have never believed that copies of the Bible are preserved in the same way. The Spirit has never preserved every last jot and tittle from the great work of copying and retranslating the various books of Scripture with not just what we would now call typos all over the place in the various textual record, but with whole stories getting added in or removed in various versions. Whole stories of the Bible have been added in seemingly from nowhere, most famously John chapter 8 verse 1 to 11, or potentially the last few chapters of Mark. At the same time, whole sections have been removed. Some chapters in Daniel and Esther are canon in some churches and removed in others. 
And of course, there's the whole question of which books of the Bible even belong in there, with candidates like the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas, a whole mess of extra acts and parts of Enoch having been included in the canon at various times, but later removed. While more controversial works like the Song of Solomon and Esther and Revelations have all stayed in. Confronting the potential for fallibility in the scripture is a genuine challenge for the faith of many. A lot of people simply refuse to confront it. They just shut down any such discussion and they hold their scriptures as they have it as their rock. And I can't say I blame them. Most people have a lot going on in their lives. Getting deep into the weeds on a difficult issue can add real stress in a life. But I genuinely don't believe that the textual issues of the Bible should pull anyone away from faith. And that's because I don't believe that faith comes from the Bible. Now, don't, don't take that the wrong way. I'm, I'm sure I've already gotten some people have set, some people have thrown their phones on the ground and smashed them. But listen, faith comes from God. Our Heavenly Father created this world, placing His testimony in nature. Our Savior redeemed this world, and testimony of Him is found throughout Scripture. But most important for a personal faith is the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes to a person's soul and testifies to Him directly. Now, different denominations call this different things, like the indwelling of the Spirit, or a state of grace, or sanctification, or election. But we can all agree that part of receiving God's grace is having that Spirit. And that Spirit is the foundation of a personal testimony of faith. All three of these triune aspects, Father, Son, and Spirit, are perfect in heaven. But because the world is broken by sin, our perception of them is broken. The sin in our own hearts can pull us away from the Spirit. So there, and there's no one here that would disagree with that. The failings of generations of copyists and translators can introduce inconsistencies in Scripture in much the same way. And human ignorance and hubris can fail to see the fingerprints of the Creator in creation. My point here is that faith should be powerfully informed by Scripture. And did we have no better way of knowing the details of God from multiple angles than the reliable time testim testimony of the prophets, saints, and ordinary people of these ancient records? And I think if someone really sits down and takes their time with Scripture, they will find that the textual corruptions rarely, if ever, affect what we actually learn about God in Scripture. Actually, I'd go so far as to say that the various interpretations of the different sects more radically change the meaning of Scripture than any questions about historicity or transcription errors. Faith should be informed by Scripture, but it should be grounded ultimately in the Holy Spirit within each of us. That doesn't make a faithful person immune to evidence or reason, but it does mean that we should be able to confidently approach sometimes difficult parts of the Bible, like the genuine question of whether or not the things we read are historical or transmitted correctly without fear. 
Honestly, I don't have all the answers. I've never had all the answers, but I have enough of a certainty in my personal experiences with God, in my relationship and covenants with God, that I trust everything will fall into place, even if I might not ever have all the answers this side of the veil. Seeking answers is to seek to know God, and is a powerful, faith-affirming exercise when done with prayer and trust. But also, accepting that we don't have all the answers is humbling, and I know that I certainly can always use a bit more humbling before the Creator. And that's why I can very definitively state that there are aspects of the Old Testament which certainly do not line up with what we know of history in a definitive enough way to say that there's probably a failed textual transmission in the Bible. And yet I still have faith in my own life, and I still encourage all of you listening to seek out the Creator in your own lives. Of course, at this point I suspect I've lost quite a lot of people, folks who aren't interested in all this talk of faith. I understand, I used to be that kind of person, but beyond questions of errors in the Bible, there is the important fact that so much of biblical history, especially the stuff that we find most interesting, is not actually disconfirmable or confirmable, but takes place in some of the hardest to prove eras of history. And this is less of a faith crisis and more just something that makes me wonder. You see, if the Bible tells a story and there's no external evidence either way on the topic, I'm generally inclined to believe the Bible story in the broad outlines of nothing else. I think some of you listening have already expressed your frustration with my credulity in episodes leading up to here, but that's fine. There's such a thing called the God of the Gaps, and back when I was an atheist, I was very certain that there was no God aside from these gods of the gaps. Perhaps because of that, I'm extra attuned to the idea that, is my God a God of the gaps? Now, God of the gaps, for those who haven't heard of it, is an idea put forward by modern atheists that religious belief is a function of ignorance. Back in the old days, we didn't know where lightning came from, so we invented Zeus and Adad and Telepanu and the other gods to be the cause of lightning. Nowadays, we know that lightning is actually an expression of electric charge differentials between clouds and the ground balancing out. And so because we have a naturalistic explanation, many have decided that we no longer need to see God's hand in a lightning bolt. Of course, others have said that God's hand is still in that lightning bolt. It's in those electric charge differentials, or whatever is causing those, or whatever is causing those. Carrying that over to history, people once thought that the Earth must have a creator, and without any clear explanation of that creator, they defaulted to God. As we fill in our gaps of our knowledge, we have new mechanistic causes rather than mystical ones. It's generally assumed by secular rationalists that the mysteries that still exist, such as the source of abiogenesis and the Big Bang, will one day be solved in a similar fashion without recourse to God. Though this is mostly an argument which exists in the sciences, there's an application of biblical history. As we reveal more and more history, we don't find an increasing amount of evidence to actually 
confirm the biblical narrative, and especially not God's involvement in anything. We find a lot of suggestions that there may be a kernel of truth in the story, or that oral traditions may have remembered certain aspects of an ancient society, but while few things are categorically proven false, little is proven true by usual historical standards of evidence. Instead, we're left with a wide range of possible truth values for most of our historically focused stories. And though we haven't covered it yet, this actually goes all the way past the deep antiquity that we've looked at so far. The tales of the Babylonian exile, uh, which we maybe think might have been written closer to the time of the actual events that they're describing, are in some ways kind of garbled. And even Ezra, Nehemiah, Maccabees, and the Gospels are often the only source for the history they're describing and really hard to confirm or deny in specific detail. In one sense, this is a big, big reminder for epistemic humility that we take very seriously the idea that we are only able to know a tiny, tiny fraction of what was going on in ancient history. These same issues affect most narratives in all of ancient history. Look at the deep antiquity of Asian nations and their traditions for similar issues. Uh, in most nations, in most generations, especially in the ancient world, we only know anything at all about a relative handful of all the people who lived, and only a tiny fraction of the events, traditions, ideas, practices, and stories from the ancient world survive to this day. There are a handful of unusually well-documented periods, but even then, those are usually limited not just in time and geographical scope, but also in societal scope as well, with kings, priests, and other high-status folk getting way more attention than various outsiders and inferiors. And yet, there's also a question of faith here. God does not in the modern day announce himself in indisputable ways. Now, surely the all-powerful creator and controller of all existence could do so. And indeed, we're told that in the final days, things will become so obvious that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And yet at this stage of history, God has stubbornly resisted rigorous analysis, preferring instead to work exclusively through faith. If we were to find historical proof of God's hand, as much as I would like to find such a thing, I don't think it would actually be consistent with how God has worked in our era. And so as much as we might like to augment our spiritual faith with concrete evidence, I think believers studying biblical history will always be on edge a little bit. Because if the biblical story is false, there may at any time come an archaeological discovery or set of discoveries proving its ultimate falsity. However, if the story is true, we may never learn the full truth of it on this side of Judgment Day. But I do also want to mention, in this grab bag of historical Bible issues, the matter of genre. There is a growing awareness of this issue in modern biblical scholarship, and I dare say that if you've done any serious Bible study, you've already encountered this. But different books of the Bible, 
and even sometimes different sections within the same book, are intended to communicate in different styles to different audiences. Some are highly poetic, some are parables or fables intended to teach a moral lesson, not a history lesson. Some are actual letters written by people to other people, and some parts are travel narratives or exotic novels. The prophets are whatever prophets are. And this is hugely important when approaching the Bible as history, that we take the parts that are not actually intended as history as non-historical. I kind of want to do a Book of Job episode somewhere in here because it is a respondent to and participant in a Babylonian genre of theodistical literature and by far the longest and most complete such example. I'm also kind of scared to do it because boy is Job complicated, but it's far from clear if Job was ever a historical person. Even Jesus mentioning Job doesn't make him an historical person, because people reference fictional stories all the time to make a point. Jesus mostly taught in parables about people that didn't exist. I have referenced on this show The Lord of the Rings, various superheroes, and Warhammer 40,000 right next to real historical people, and I assume you as the audience are just intuitively sorting out the fictional and real people, understanding the deeper point that I'm making, a point that may be lost on some future historian who can't tell Spider-Man from Hammurabi. And so with genre, we can take stories that have been incredibly controversial, like the Genesis creation account, and understand them in new ways that remain perfectly faithful to scripture and also consistent with historical study. While this is a larger topic than I can get into, I can point out William Lane Craig, one of the most prominent internet apologists, a conservative evangelical who's built a career out of debating atheists, who not too long ago put out a book promoting old earth creationism. Now, he still, still appears to believe that God is the ultimate driver of all things, but that the general scientific story of a 13.8 billion year old universe is accurate and compatible with the Bible when properly understood. I actually think that coming to this conclusion seems to have been a bit of a surprise to him, having seen a few interviews, and it's definitely cost him some friends in evangelical circles. But the point is that genre helps us understand a lot about the Bible. It turns out that the better we understand the Bible, the more it makes sense. But at the same time, genre actually makes things worse for us sometimes. Some books of the Bible, some sections of the Bible, are definitely intended as histories, and usually histories for history's sake. And the theological message becomes wrapped up tightly in the history. This is why Numbers 1 and Genesis 14 are such big deals for me, because as far as I can tell, these are intended as genuine accounts, yet contain errors. These are the sorts of places that a faithful historian really has to confront issues of biblical accuracy. On the other hand, we're not f that far from the twin monarchies of Israel and Judah in our main narrative. And here we'll also see history as history in a way that actually will be confirmable in profound and surprising ways. 
Genre is a tool, not a get-out-of-jail-free card, and the Bible's historicity will rise or fall ultimately based on its truth, not the details of our analytical method, so long as those methods are consistently and earnestly applied. And finally, why does history matter at all? Now, this is a question I personally get asked from time to time by my wife, who doesn't actually think history matters and would sometimes prefer that I do the dishes rather than do podcast research. And I actually mentioned in my notes, say something like this. And then as I was recording just now, my wife asked me if I clean the bathroom uh, wall. And I said, I'm doing doing my podcast. And, and She's not a fan of that. I'm going to do the palm good to my bathroom wall after this. But anyway, that's not relevant. Uh, if you're listening to this, chances are pretty good that you actually think history is worthwhile and interesting for its own sake, and probably have a listing of good outcomes that history research and historical education promotes. But my wife and many like her have much more practical interests, like apparently cleaning the shower. And history for them is of little interest and little direct relevance. Ain't no Mesopotamian gonna clean that shower. Now most are less blunt than her and are gonna go along and nod, mouthing platitudes that, oh, history is important, before ignoring it completely. But I think practical-minded people are particularly valuable for those of us who enjoy studying relatively esoteric topics for our, for our own sake. For example, not that long ago, my wife and I were sitting in the car, and with not much going on, I started to tell her about how the city of Asher transitioned from a mercantile state to a conquest-based state. And I did ramble for perhaps a bit longer than anyone really cared, kind of like today I'm almost at an hour. Oh my goodness. Uh, but then at the end, things got quiet, and she asked me, so what's the point? And me, the paragon of articulate wit that I am, said pretty much, I don't know, I guess it's fun. And she gave me a withering look of skepticism. It was pretty great, and that's also why I don't live stream this show. But really, what's the point of it all? Certainly, I have a lot of fun putting this show together, doing all the reading and making all the notes and recording, and I do hope that those of you listening enjoy the show just on an entertainment level, if nothing else. So that's valuable. And for sure, the people doing real history provide valuable data to the social sciences at large, though that doesn't really apply to me and those of us who listen to shows like this. But really... This was a question for which I kind of struggled to find a good answer for a while. I mean, I know all the platitudes, they just never really resonated with me. But it was when I started this biblical history series that I really understood. History must be important because God structured a huge chunk of scripture in this fashion. It isn't just that it teaches us lessons in the abstract, but that when correctly looked at, it really is a source for the actions and consequences of a wide variety of human behavior. It isn't anything so simple as history repeating itself or being doomed to repeat the mistakes of history. Those are mere sophisms. 
Rather, history is relevant because these ancients are people just like us, connected to us in a profoundly human way. We should be connected to the people who came before us just for the sake of that connection. Isaiah longed for a time when the hearts of the children would turn to their fathers, and for the wisdom of those that went before us, a wisdom increasingly out of fashion in the modern world. Now that's history in general, but turning to biblical history, it's a mix of wisdom and connection that God has chosen to communicate his messages to the vast majority of the world who's never had direct experiences of his most famous miracles and prophets, just the scripture and the missionaries. And because he's chosen the medium of history, I think it's even more important to get that history right by which I mean understanding the places where the Bible has its history wrong, facing up to these historical challenges, and understanding the greater context of these ancient peoples and places. And that's why I've ended up spending so much time on this Mesopotamian history podcast talking about Israel. I honestly could have breezed past it, with a few mentions, maybe a fun special episode, but this history is important. And the context and application of this history is so often misunderstood by people who genuinely love the Bible, but often don't love history, or don't have a solid foundation in it. And that pretty much brings us to the end of today's extended rant. If you haven't listened to episode 116 yet, that's a normal, standard episode getting us into King Saul and should have published at about the same time. If you haven't seen it yet, try refreshing or maybe look into your podcast feed. It might be hiding. But also, it's, it's that time again. I hate advertising for this show, and I hate to waste your time with constant reminders to like and subscribe, but for real, if you've been enjoying this show, either the Israel series or the Mesopotamian stuff more broadly, I would really appreciate it if you could support the show. And by that I mean like and subscribe if you're on YouTube, leave a comment if your podcast app allows you to leave a comment, or if you're on YouTube, or a review if that's an option on your podcast app. You don't even have to say much, just hit whatever the stars or the thumbs up or I don't know all these apps. Um, just getting a review or a comment or any engagement at all posted up there helps the show look better for the algorithms that help people find new stuff. And of course, if you really want to be a missionary spreading the good news of the Oldest Stories podcast, telling your friends in real life or posting on social media, just anything you can do to help more people hear about the show, that's a huge help for me. Honestly, the entire back end of posting and marketing and, as you can tell, editing is clearly not my strong suit here. So your help in spreading the show is a blessing for me. And I hope it's a blessing for those whom this show is reaching. Thank you so much for all the support of listeners like you who are already doing these things. And thank you, as always, for listening.